Well, whatever unintended consequences, at least we have a dynamic price system that will tell us what's going wrong and allow us to, well, allow entrepreneurs to do, I don't know how to finish that sentence, but I, I know they'll do something good. I know they'll do something good, though. Today, we are discussing F.A. Hayek's 1944 text, The Road to Serfdom. Most likely, for many of our listeners, Hayek needs no introduction. You might think of him as the guy who helped wreck the world, depending on your orientation, of course. But I will summarize the key biographical details before turning to a couple of the main points of the text. Hayek was an Austrian-British economist and political philosopher who spent much of his career between the London School of Economics and the University of Chicago. He also co-founded the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, whose prime function was to shift the terrain of economic debate away from what they perceived as the growing dangers of socialism and collectivism and toward the classical liberalism of so-called free markets and competition. I would actually suggest you check out Quinn Slobidian's Globalists for a really great history of that society and those debates. Hayek is an important figure, given that many political leaders from George H.W. Bush to Margaret Thatcher drew inspiration from his economic ideas for their own policies. One way to think of Hayek is that many of his core ideas lent legitimacy to the idea that freedom and market co competition are coextensive. The Road to Serfdom is certainly not Hayek's most sophisticated text. So yes, real heads for Hayek, if you're listening to us. You may wonder why we didn't read The Constitution of Liberty or some of his many economic articles. And the reason is that this is probably his most influential text. And so this book began as an internal memo at the London School of Economics before it's finally published. I mention this because the guiding intuition for Hayek was that universities in particular were misunderstanding the rise of Nazism and fascism as emerging from the dynamics of capitalism rather than as a species of collectivism. So if you want to have in your mind who would be almost the exact opposite of Hayek, think of Adorno and Horkheimer and their understandings of fascism as actually imminent to capitalist dynamics. And Hayek, he thinks that that's absolutely wrong. What Hayek aims to do in this text is basically marry Nazism and Stalinism together and conceive of them as sharing the same root so that he can position the value of liberty as properly belonging to capitalism. For an understanding of what quote-unquote classical liberalism has come to mean and the sort of justifications it appeals to for its values, I think The Road to Serfdom is an important text to read. So how does Hayek justify his social theory that classical liberalism, and by this you should understand broadly freedom of individual choice and the incommensurability of visions of the good life. For more on this, subscribe and listen to our recent episode in John Rawls's Political Liberalism. Nice to get in a promo. 
the market as a spontaneous rather than constructed order, and general laws or rules that create stable conditions for competition. So how does he justify the social theory of classical liberalism? Well, there are two main distinctions that frame the road to serfdom. They're this distinction between individualism and collectivism, and the distinction between planning and competition. Let's start with the first distinction because I think it will be most familiar to those who have, stu who have studied liberal ideas. Hayek thinks a free order must respect the fact that there's no way to preserve liberty and subordinate values and preferences or desires to any comprehensive doctrine. Hayek wants to make a political claim that because societies are diverse, we can expect that individuals will have different ideas on what they take to be the good life and what they will need to do to achieve it. Hayek thinks that partisans of collectivist regimes, by invoking notions such as common good and social justice, misunderstand that there are no common values that would receive universal assent, and the attempt to realize such values will take a political system down, you guessed it, the road to serfdom. That's the title of the book. Yeah, yeah, you know, see, see, I'm clever like that. <laughs> Fascinatingly, Hayek thinks most people would actually agree with him on this. And this is him fainting towards being generous towards um, um, his socialist opponents. And so the problem is that so-called socialist Hayek contends do not understand the unintended outcomes of their attempts to realize a just world through conscious control of economic life. I think it is key that Hayek imputes a kind of ignorance to most people who adhere to socialist ideas because it is his conservative epistemology that grounds his distinction between planning and competition. To put it bluntly, Hayek thinks that partisans of planning vastly overestimate the knowledge they have at their disposal. The constantly shifting preferences, resources, and environment contain a vast complexity that no single mind could predict or know. Side note, this is why Hayek claims to hate Hegel. He read Hegel as, you know, basically this <laughs> idea that there could be a single mind that could contain all of this. But when pushed on this later in his life, he actually admitted he has no idea really what Hegel is saying. Don't ask <laughs> For Hayek, it is the constitutive complexity of social life that tells against attempts at planning, and this is because, as follows from his individualism, no one can truly know the mind of another person, and so we cannot see what they see. It is through competition, Hayek claims, that fluctuating price signals can give us some general knowledge of the preferences and resources that exist in the world. For Hayek, Prices are primarily a mechanism to communicate information, and thus the planning competition distinction, contra the individualism collectivism distinction, is primarily epistemological, is primarily a claim about knowledge and what we can know. And thus it follows from the philosophy of mind that Hayek explicitly defends in other papers. In The Road to Serfdom, Hayek seems to assume that these prices in a stable and free order that values individual liberty are a more dynamic and accurate mechanism for distributing information than any central committee that may try to either throw out the price system or end up artificially distorting it. I think it is important to keep in mind that Hayek's classical liberalism and his argument against socialism rests on these mutually interdependent political and epistemological premises. My intervention is I think the epistemology is as important to Hayek as the, the political claim. 
Hayek was deeply influenced by the Scottish Enlightenment and the work of philosophers like David Hume, and thus he thought that much of our conduct is not due to the explicit knowledge we have, but the tacit and implicit knowledge we gain from the interaction with our local customs and traditions. He also attempted to prove that competition adheres to a general tendency of evolution that allows useful patterns of life to be selected in or unuseful patterns of life to be selected out. But he also thought that this evolutionary argument justified what he thought were the hard limbs of human cognition. Most people generally agree that his attempts to ground this in evolution make very little sense, but I want to give Hayek his flowers. This man was a polymath, and so he's trying to actually integrate economics, biology, social sociology, epistemology, etc. In this introduction, I have not set out to offer any critiques of Hayek, but simply show that Hayek's politics are not independent of his epistemology. I tend to think that challenging Hayek's conclusions require challenging not only his distinction between individualism, collectivism, but between planning and competition. Because if he is right, and I don't think he is, but if he is right about our constitutive ignorance, then I think this presents some major problems for justifying an economic system like socialism. With that, I will turn it over to you all and ask what you thought of the reading. Thanks for that. Um, I'll start. I should say here that our group chat's been really fun over the past week as we've been reading this book because this man is a zealot. He's wild. Uh, it's like very fun. True I, believer. I had a really, a real believer. No, and there is like a kind of, um, he really sounds like he's trying to save the world in this. We book. love a like real he, liberal militant. They're rare. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. A rarity. <laughs> he's um, not squishy. <laughs> no, he's not. He's very clear about like where he stands on some of these things. I think you're definitely right that it's the epistemological framework that he's got in place that grounds some of the sort of more conservative politics that falls out of this, right? He thinks that the limits on what one can know are such that any attempt at doing any kind of comprehensive planning, like we can leave to the side for a second, the question about how this interacts with things like democracy, values, worldview systems, what you take to be the good life. He thinks that just like before we even get to any of that, just people don't have enough capacity for processing the complexity of the information that's generated in a society such as ours. He thinks that the development of market forces and market competition creates this complexity that there's no version of like a supercomputer that could do the work of sort of mediating all of these different things. But then, and I just don't know how to, how to buy this. Like he says, good news. Like that's what this price system does. Price signals do. It just does that. And it just adjusts our behaviors automatically. And I'm like, I've, no idea why I should accept that, even if I buy the first part of the limitation epistemological premise. Why should I accept that market systems and price signals do that information processing work at the, at the requisite scale? Other than, you know, it's the 1940s and he's looking around like, I don't know, seems like it's working. Seems pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty honest to me. Yeah, I think on that, it's interesting and kind of symptomatic to me that he, he, only, he almost never in this book uses the word capitalism. And when he does, he kind of puts it in air quotes. Like he doesn't really want to talk <laughs> about capitalism. And it's because he's like epistemically, well, he's, he's epistemically averse to thinking that there is anything like a social totality, right? A concept like that has mm -hmm. been important for us in a number of, like on the podcast. And he thinks that understanding something like get he uses the term synoptic view getting a synoptic view of your society as a whole is impossible right and so it's best just to all we can the best thing we can do the most natural thing we can do is just not even try and just allow the spontaneity 
whatever, <laughs> the spontaneity of human freedom to just kind of work things out. He has this cool idea that uh, entrepreneurs really understand their environment and their and everything that's surrounding them more than like a scholar or a Marxist sociologist or a philosopher does. And or so, some like, bureaucrat. What we need is yeah, bureaucrat. the loose coordination of thousands of entrepreneurs making their you know, understanding the, the, their particular environment better. But it's a, it's a good, cool claim. I mean, I get that I'm like broken record bitch right now, but don't you think that this is like fundamentally something postmodernists agree with? You know, yeah, like I, was, I feel I that num- what, yeah. what's yeah. really wild about like the hegemony of Hayek's ideas from a kind of meta-philosophical perspective, these epistemic ideas is that this just like is what I was trained to think. It's just I wasn't trained to think about it in the in the way that Hayek is describing it. But like the fundamental orientation toward human knowledge and the world as such and values when the academy and philosophy, like the in the interchange between the two, transitioned to the postmodern period, that was the set of arguments that was straightforwardly mm-hmm. accepted as the most critical possible vantage point. <laughs> I had this thought world. a bunch of times reading it. Yeah, like I mean, you, you know, I I'm glad. Okay, I I hope that I know that that's kind of a a background thing, and there's some more specific things to say about capitalism as a social system, but like. Really, mm-hmm. what I was like stood out to me is that if you were to ask like leotard, like T or F, you know, basically, I know like small T and small F, you know what I mean? Like T or F, of course. do no, the no, truth no, no, table, no, homie. He would be like <laughs> 100%, my man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No more meta narratives. All of his rants against like the powers of the conscious subject and like, you know, our consciousness is not capable, conscious man is not capable of understanding all this complexity of, you know, complex social processes. Like, I'm like, yeah, like that's, that's the stuff I learned in grad school about, you know, unseating the sovereign subject. You know what I mean? Like the, so- oh God. the Cartesian <laughs> like sovereign subject. And I was like, yo, this is a, our dude is a postmodern like militant. <laughs> my 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 du- my dude just said we are all Hayekians now. Yeah. Like, yeah, Hayek got his final revenge <laughs> in grad school departments. Yeah, exactly. We all understand the partiality of viewpoint. Mm-hmm. We all understand the importance of custom and culture. We all understand that there is no whole, you know, no wow. totality. And again, any attempt at planning is going to be, by definition, then totalitarian, right? Like it will involve imposition, uh, organization around a single end. Like sometimes he says things and I'm just like, I have no idea, again, why I should buy like some of the assumptions here. And one of them is like, I I wrote this down. Let me see if I've got this here. Where he's talking about planning. Uh, It's like one of the only things he ever talks about. Um, He (laughs) says, this is on page 36 in my copy. Quote, what our planners demand is a central direction of all economic activity according to a single plan, laying down how the resources of society should be, quote, consciously directed to serve particular ends in a definite way. And I'm always like, why a single plan? Why does like any <laughs> amount of planning just amounts to just like single vision totalitarianism, like a singular end towards which all things are geared? I'm like, does that does all planning mean that? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, deal. I think so. I mean, one thing that you do have to kind of keep in mind is that someone I, I was talking to right before this did raise this point and, and they'll know who they are. I 
this was written this was written in 48 right it's like 44 it was published but yeah, yeah it was it was it was definitely so, written to like okay so you're dealing with the aftermath yeah. of the war this you know r- rough times intellectually and this is um before social democracy becomes a way of organizing mm-hmm. capitalist e- economies so He's seeing these arguments about planning, and and I actually don't totally understand exactly what he means, if I'm honest. Like, what reforms and impulses towards planning in, like, Germany and France and the UK. Like, what exactly do you mean? But there is an interesting moment where it does seem like either or, because the reforms that would emerge during the boom years had but then you know he doesn't take it back later either which is kind of interesting so mm-hmm. i was like i can kind of give him the benefit of the doubt but it's but you in know as you said 40s, in the beginning yeah. it's not like he takes it back so <laughs> i don't know on that point in the forward one of the forwards there's a couple of them i think one of them is from well there's one from 56 and another one from the 70s but i can't remember which one of this is it's from but he basically goes at social democracies and says you know, oh, this might look like it's doing something good, like the Labour Party in Britain or various like social democratic measures across Europe. This might look like it's doing something good, but then he kind of raises two problems. Like one is that, you know, there's a slow creep from you know things like universal healthcare to totalitarianism at the very end, right? He thinks that like as soon as you start down this road, the road to serfdom, yeah. right? It starts from That's these the policies, the these good intentions, right? And then the other part of it mm-hmm. is he says. And this is something you could hear like Margaret Thatcher pick up a lot from Hayek later on is that, you know, these policies might seem ameliorative. They might seem good, like they're helping people's lives, but it's leading to, he calls it the enervation of the spirit. You know what I mean? Like it's the, the people are becoming dependent mm-hmm. in their mentality and stuff. It's a crazy, awesome idealist argument, right? About how like oh, for yeah. him, history is determined by like mentalities and who's like, whether yes. our spirit is vigorous and entrepreneurial or whether it's like, you know, and so for him, like even the most seemingly positive social democratic measure contains the seeds of like what in his view is like barbarism, right? Because it, yeah, it's going to reduce people down to sl- slaves, he says. Yeah. <laughs> I want to back you up on that, Owen, because I, I don't know how many real head Hayekians are going to listen but yes i've read the constitution of liberty okay even that in more that more serious work oh yeah hayek has this cultural argument that this thing that you think that you are doing of helping the general welfare of course he starts up i forget when he wrote the constitution of liberty but he's starting to look at anti-colonial movements it's like you might think that this is great and all of that. And yes, actually, he admits this, and I love this. Hayek goes, yes, the dynamics of competition, they do bring misery in the short run. You know, people are going to be uprooted from, from their lives, etc. But, you know, this is how we test our ideas. But he thinks when we turn away from that, we become the type of people who no longer have the capacity to in- innovate. So part of his argument, the reason why I mentioned, like, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment is actually an important part of Hayek's thinking is he's also really concerned with the types of customs and capacities we're inculcating in ourselves because he thinks i'm not gonna go too far down this road but hayek thinks you do need a type of character if you're going to work well in a competitive society and yes he does think that there's some places he's looking in the world aren't quite up to snuff i'm trying not to say it but hayek does think about race a bit and so this worry about the creeping of social democracy you know it's, it's fascinating so let's give hayek his i'm they're not even flowers at this point yes hayek Hayek thinks that you shouldn't just let people live in absolute destitution. He'll say, sure, 
we should grant some sort of minimum where people don't fall fall below. But you know, he he wants to say that even these things that you think are helping in the short term are not going to be sustainable for complex dynamic societies in the long term. And so his whole thing is using basically this futural argument of saying we don't know how this will corrupt our customs and traditions and create in us the type of people who will be subservient, the type of people who will not be able to raise up the principle of competition to all that it can do. And so I, I, I like thinking of Hayek as not just an economist. He takes seriously what he thinks about how tradition and customs guide action. Uh-huh. He, he's probably wrong, but he <laughs> thinks that this is all a type of unified thinking, which is funny because he also doesn't want to think in terms of totalities. But there you mm-hmm. go. That's Hayek. On the note about like the culturalism and the idealism, like that first chapter of The Road to Serfdom has some lines that just really had me shaking my head where he's just like, even here in our own beautiful country, these disgusting German and French ideas are starting to gain <laughs> purchase and traction. And it's like, wow, relax, but, dude. Why don't you take it easy? It's cool, though. He's not saying that this is anything necessarily about German character. It just so happens they got a little drunk on Hegel so and brought reason. it over here. Yeah. Yeah, he gets so yeah, mad at weird. German ideas. He's like super nostalgic about when like British ideas were really expanding <laughs> until like Hegel comes along and, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, he is thinking about modes of thought. And you know, yeah. he, his worry is that once these start to take root and become a type of common sense, then you, you, know, you enter in a situation where he thinks it, it might be irreversible, the turn away from the individual in competition. Wow, it's true. All of modern philosophy really is just like Hegel versus Hayek. <laughs> that's the that's the new grudge match though it's not, no, it's not new but isn't that yeah. what Foucault said some some shit like that too where he was like Hegel's always lurking around the corner yep and yeah. when I think oh, yes. about it like my main my main objections to this way of thinking are that you know I think we have a form of life we're working in right now like I think Sorry to be so Marxian about it, but like I think the value form is a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, you know, you can think about this quantitatively, like the valorization process, but it's also qualitative. Valuing is an activity that we do, mm-hmm. and that is the predominant form of valuing. And there's nothing like individualistic about that in a certain way. Like <laughs> totally. there's a selective totally. me- there's a selection mechanism that tells me what I can and can't do. You know, I used this example with some people I was talking to at a workshop in Frankfurt two days ago where I was like, listen, when I was in graduate school in New York, I was broke. And what did I do when I was broke? How did I feed myself? Every week I went to the supermarket and I bought the same thing, the exact same thing, because that's the only way I could control the cost. I didn't diversify my diet because I was like, well, if I try, then that might go over budget. You know, it's a small example, but this was pretty coercive as far as I'm concerned, eating <laughs> mm-hmm. the same fucking thing for dinner every night for seven years, pretty much. Like, I don't know how to make this any more concrete, you know, and I, I can get existentially bigger for you if you want, but there's a whole series of, like, constraints that this places on you, and it's not just creating, he, he creates, he, he's like, this creates options. This is what I mean when you primarily see <laughs> the economy as creating options and opportunities and not as constraints creating constraints mm-hmm. for you values just seem to put proliferate as opposed to being selected for or against and i just feel like you can only see that 
if you are a little more Hegelian about it, yeah? So, and this is why I just do feel like that is the tension in all of the, in between postmodernism and modernism, between thinking about the totality and meta narrative, mega, whatever the narrative thing. And then I like that the mega, mega narrative. narratives. That's cool. Mega, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Our yeah. audience doesn't need to be told this story <laughs> over again, but I just feel like you got to pick a side, man. And I think that there's a reason these ideas all match up so sweetly with each other. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that like the, it's no surprise then that like he's got so much owed to that Scottish Enlightenment stuff. It's a really sort of blinkered empiricism that refuses to take the step beyond just like, I don't know, people seem to like the stuff that they buy at the store. This is, what, what are you talking about? Like, you know, can't there be more systematic analyses of like the structuring material uh, underlying like systems that make life look the way that it does where people have certain sorts of values and not others. He says at some point to also back up one of the things you said, Lillian, that, okay, you know, we live in this extremely complicated society. We'd like all of our uh, activities to be adapted somehow. And he says competition oftentimes is quote, the only method by which our activities can be adjusted to each other without coercive or arbitrary and intervention of authority. And that's exactly like to your point. It's like, what a weird thin notion of coercion you've got to have if you like look around at seeing like ruthless market competition driving people into poverty and being like, no coercion here. This looks great. <laughs> but all at once, he has a thin notion of coercion. And Owen and I were talking about this a couple days ago. But then as soon as you start talking about like you know, uh, health care or any sort of socialism, right. that's – that oh is God. coercive. And this arbitrary so power has gone too far. Like it's thin, but then it becomes like it becomes really thick. And you know, I actually came into this episode wanting to try to defend Hayek a bit, but I'm just like, I'm not really in the mood. But what I find very fascinating here is that you know, Hayek has a very particular way of understanding freedom that doesn't really have to pay attention to social conditions. In fact, you know, what he understands as freedom is you know, you get to decide and you might not be able to control your environment. Environment, but the environment for him is almost like it's just a black box. It is, you yeah. know, it's it's what you're given, and you know, there as best as we can do. There shouldn't be any politics affecting that environment. By the environment, I mean you know, sort of economic relations. The only politics he'll allow is yes, there should be rule of law only insofar as law stabilizes the competitive mechanism of the market. Beyond that, the state must withdraw. But of course, any good Marxist knows that's not really the state withdrawing. The state is constantly having to shore up these markets. Sorry to interrupt and you, so, but I think he says that though. I feel like that was kind of an honest moment, moment for him where he was like, "You do the law is like constitutive of like securing these yeah. conditions in a way Actually, that, like, I think that that's what's really great about Hayek. He, he's actually, he doesn't muck about and think that the law is about some ideal of justice. He thinks, no, the law gives sort of general abstract expectations that will allow for the processes of competition, economic exchange, etc. And so for him, freedom is not social freedom. It is a very particular type of economic freedom that looked at from another direction doesn't look like economic freedom. It looks like economic coercion. The last thing I'll say real quick, I wanted to say this when Gil was saying, you know, any bit of planning leads to collectivism, except he's like, well, one type of planning is okay. 
planning that ensures competition. Yeah. But then he's like, you know, I know it's going to get confusing because, you know, I just keep calling it all planning. Basically, he's just like, I hope you read me closely and know that I allow for a little bit of planning, planning for capitalism. Yeah. yeah and then yeah, he just yeah. leaves it there <laughs> and moves yeah, on. Yeah. Well, he, call, he said he describes it as planning in such a way that you leave most of the planning to individuals making their life plans. You know what I mean? So, mm. Which I thought and was a nice little trick. Ask, Dude, it rocks. Yeah, what, what, what is that prior <laughs> planning? Because as Gil was saying, this idea that planning leads to a sort of uni- unity of value, that, that prior planning that allows for individuals huh. to plan in competition, are we talking about imposition here? Say more, Hyatt. How do these markets happen? And he's just like, Hmm? I'm sorry, what? Cool. what, what <laughs> New number, who did? <laughs> <laughs> when he talked, well, the chapter on rule of law was really interesting in this regard because by rule of law, he means like the thing that he thinks is cool about the rule of law is that there are certain stipulated in advance, always in advance, before any legal action is taken by the state, before the government does anything, there are rules laid down, but they're very formal and they're very abstract. And he thinks that this is a good thing because the minute you start to particularize or concretize, you know, the way that you would have to if you were trying to bring some fucking evil plan about, well, then you're going to have to like make decisions that are not capable of being indifferent or impartial, right? You're going to have to make choices, say, about like some of the examples he gives are, I think, interesting ones. Like what if there's like a conflict where we can only like have X number of like school buses or X amount of like milk for babies. And it's like, well, yeah, any choice made there is going to not be an impartial one. And he's like, yeah, that's why we shouldn't do it. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, the ca- <laughs> Maybe that's an important the thing to think about. capitalist state noted for its impartiality. No interest in any yeah, particular right? <laughs> processes or ways of living or... <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, what I love about Hayek is, so one, it's the problem of partiality, but I do kind of want to come back to what might be Hayek on firmer ground. But I also think it's a dodge. You'll say it's not just the partiality, it's the unintended consequences. You don't know what getting specific about your policies will do in the future. So Hayek is a very, you know, he's he's a very temporal thinker insofar yeah. as he's trying to say thing that seems X thing that seems good at Y context might not be so good in Z context. It's really great about this is there is something unfalsifiable about it. He can always say, well, you'll never know in Z context too, this actually might lead to a famine. And you know, and what Hayek, you know, you wouldn't want to make a famine, would you? You wouldn't want to make a famine. So better to allow the competitive mechanism to work it out because good good to know there are no unintended consequences there <laughs> but i guess you know his idea is for being fair to him is just like well whatever unintended consequences at least we have a dynamic price system that will tell us what's going wrong and allow us to well allow entrepreneurs to do i don't know how to finish that sentence but i, I know they'll do something good i know they'll do something good though there's like a couple of moments where like, yeah, in that sort of vein where when he's talking about doesn't like to talk about capitalism, like you said, mm. does like to talk about markets and entrepreneurialism. There was this wild moment. And maybe you all can explain to me why he thinks this, because I thought it was ridiculous. Like one of the things he doesn't like also about planning or trying to do something is it's like, well, you know, effectively, you're going to end up producing monopolies the minute you start. I don't know, messing about with the price oh, system, yeah. price floors, price ceilings. This was awesome. Or if you establish any sorts of quotas or encourage anything over than anything else, he's like, then you're going to end up with monopolies. And I'm like, what? 
that is what cap that is what market competition leads to right like i don't maybe i'm too like dog brained my reading of capital here but like I don't know, when you read Mark's talking about like centralization and concentration, economies of scale and greater efficiency, increased division of labor allows larger firms to swallow up smaller ones. Uh, and he's just like, that's not a thing. That doesn't happen unless you fuck up, basically, by trying to use the state. And I'm just like completely not convinced at all by his just like quick and easy dismissal that like, oh, monopoly formation just isn't a problem if you just allow competition. Yeah, he says monopolies are just an outcome of bad state policy. There's nothing inherent to the to the market that would ever lead to that. It's like protectionism and various other state schemes where, that get in the way of, uh, of the market working practically. Sounds a little ahistorical, but. So I, I think there are two ways to um, respond to what you're saying, Gil, because I, I think you're right on one level, but I think he's making a different point that, and I, I think he's really right about this. And I, I think it's um, okay. Cool. Uh, another level, like there's, I think there's a, there's like a, 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 a there's a, two levels, and I think what you're saying is accurate at one, but there's like a macroeconomic level that he's correct about, and I think it's like actually really important. It, you know, this is like it, I think it's important for people who are interested in like political theory of capitalism, not just like as a normative thing or an epistemic thing, but like as a as a social system, like what we think the thing is to get our heads wrapped around this, because I think it has a lot of implications for lots of areas of social theory. So what do I mean? So the, in the first place, economies of scale and increasing centralization that can create monopolies in the short term in a way and then you you can also have some artificially constructed monopolies so like you can have monopolies that get state subsidies so for example oh, like sure, totally. national airlines could be a, a mm -hmm. monopoly but that's intentionally so and then you can have monopolies over like natural resources like so things that are not that are geographically specific or are prone to monopolization because it's not possible to reproduce those conditions in alternative locales. But I think the theory of monopoly capitalism that he's arguing against, like the one that Hilferding and Pollock and Adorno and Horkheimer and all the heterodox economists, Paul Sweezy and so on, that thesis is like much more specific and I think it has to be wrong. Like their argument is that the mechanisms of competition stop working at a certain point and that the state starts to take over the dominant role in investment and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has led to a lot of distortions of the fact that it is competition that drives capitalist development. So like mm – -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I, I just wanted to disambiguate. So, like, when often what the left has done and heterodox economists have done in the monopoly capitalism school is basically argue that, like, competition is kind of like a false god in a way. Um, and this is like what Lenin's, you know, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism was about. What I, from what I understand about this, I don't think the empirical evidence is follows. And I think that like a more consistent left-wing critique of the system would actually like address itself more directly to what Hayek is saying. That if, if it's wrong, if it's unjust, if it produces bad outcomes, it's because competition produces those outcomes. Not because 
it leads to monopoly distortions or whatever. And a lot of left-wing critique has relied on the latter and not the former. And that's what gives neoclassicists the ammo to be like, you fucking idiots. Because the <laughs> empirical evidence isn't there, you know? And, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so then like the realism about capitalism can become like really seductive as opposed to being like, no, competition is how it works. That's what drives the system and nonetheless, this doesn't have the outcomes that you think. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. yeah. makes sense. Yeah, 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 totally. I tend to think when I read Hayek, what I what I worry about is there can actually be something rather seductive about Hayek and his distinctions, you know, between individualism, collectivism, planning, and competition. And what I mean by that is, you know, what Hayek does is he actually rather skillfully um, obscures how capitalist dynamics actually work. And so he is able to say something like, the curtail of individuality happens because of the curtailment of competition. And so to kind of go with what Lillian is saying, but also, you know, I, I kind of want to like, you know, push it to say, so what would be a political critique that re- really hit the mark with Hayek? I think partially it is we have to respond to the idea that I think people think that something like planning must mean something like the erasure of individuality. I don't think we should concede that to Hayek at all. Mm-hmm. You know, his polemical discourse makes it seem as if you have to accept that distinction. The other question I think we would want to ask is, well, is Hayek wrong about our epistemic limitations. I come back to that because I imagine people who listen to this podcast, are, they're like, yeah, we've, we've got to disagree with Hayek. But I think a lot of people might think, well, I don't know. The world is a kind of complicated place. How am I supposed to know what's going to be needed in, like, say, you know, India or something like that? And I think part of the task is asking, is Hayek right in this sort of ahistorical, it is ahistorical, I think, for him. He just thinks it's a hard limit of our cognition and biology that we cannot know beyond sort of partial extrapolations of social life. Is he right about that? Or is it possible to envision or describe social systems that either overcome that epistemic limitation or that epistemic limitation? Basically, I think the, the way that I put it, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I'll just say it cleanly is, you know, do we have a better idea than the price system? I think Gill is right. We shouldn't just look at the price system thing. This probably is doing it right, except when the state fucks it up. But I think taking on that sort of epistemic issue of knowledge, I think that will also help create a very powerful case against you know, living this capitalist form of life. I tend to think we can't let him get away with that premise, but I'm, I'm open to disagreements on that. I do think it's kind of a heavy thing to ask, though. Like I, so like the essay on the use of information and technology in society, or whatever that's called. I think one of the things that really made me ponder about that text was when he starts talking about in the input of intermediate goods. So you know, you might say it's easy to plan how many refrigerators we need. You kind of like figure out how how long it takes to depreciate them, how many you know depreciate in value or the rate at which they break and need to be replaced and but like intermediate goods are like are the thing that's complicated that we don't understand so if you want to ask me what goes into making a refrigerator i don't know how to tell you how much steels to supply 
and at what prices? Like that's a really complicated mm-hmm. thing. And you know, there, I think there, I don't think it's impossible to answer him, but it's not. I think that the reason I think people on the left stumble over Hayek is because it's a genuine problem. It's not a fake mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I that. think that's yeah. right. I guess that, like, the the beginnings of an adequate response would be to say that, like, sure, dude, like, I'll 1,000% concede the complexity of these organizational logistical problems. They're very complicated. But he just, like, moves from it's complicated to, like, it's a black box. And there's no getting inside it at all. And I just think that that's too fast, right? Like, it's not clear to me that, like, we should just go, like Owen said much earlier, like, so I guess we just don't even try. Like, there's no there's no reason to attempt getting any kind of systematic understanding of how an advanced capitalist economy works or how and why things get distributed in the way that they do. Just, just no knowledge to be had. Price system is all that we got. That seems too fast. And the thing is, is that even if you solve, like, even if it were possible to plan He's got this other auxiliary argument, which is that it's wrong to plan, right? So like, yeah. even if you manage to solve the problem, yeah. then you still get back into the other issue. Like, okay, let's say it is possible to, to, you know, to get a synoptic view of the social totality, to make definitive plans and account for all of these, um, what did you call them, Lillian? Intermediary. Intermediary, yeah. Um, you would still deal with the problem of like basically you're just sinking your people back into like a, a, for, a form of like character servitude or mental servitude or something. And so then, then you're, you're just asking for disaster again down the road, right? You're asking for a big drop in productivity. You're asking for, you know, um, conflict between you know, the a imposition of, of one form, of social life, the, the imposition exactly of one that. form of life on everybody, yeah. like the, one the, vision of the, the, good, re- one the ruination of, of pluralism and the pluralism of conceptions of the good and all that um so it is it's it's uh i mean that part i think is much easier to to argue against than the other part which i agree is a real fucking problem actually but yeah i just think it's worth remembering that no i think that's a great point owen and this is where you know i think we can be hard-nosed with hayek the reason what you're showing there and i think is absolutely right hayek on the one hand seems to be making this sort of hard-nosed sort of pragmatic epistemological argument but he keeps switching quickly Mm -hmm. back and forth between Mm -hmm. that and his normative argument and that normative argument is just as important to him make no mistake hayek does think that there is a type of morality that is commensurate with the market and he endorses that and so i think think of it as kind of a shell game that he plays. If you solve the epistemological question, he moves to the normative. If you you solve the normative, he moves to the mm-hmm. epistemological. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to see that he's constantly going back and forth in order to, I think basically because he thinks that these premises, either the epistemological or the sort of normative, they're actually not enough to justify the system he wants in the world. And so he needs them to constantly fill in the gaps uh, of the other premise. And I, I, I don't want to end this episode without letting Hayek off the hook for his fuckery in Chile uh, and you know, um, his you know, imbrication with the dictator Augusto Pinochet. Near the end of the last chapter we read, if you think, well, Hayek must be you know, someone who endorses democracy, make no mistake that you know, Hayek may be a classical liberal, but that doesn't mean he's a full-throated defender of democracy. Insofar as democracy begins to, I'm going to be blunt about it, begins to attack the mechanisms of the market, well then, 
the suspension of democracy might not be too bad in the name of some mm-hmm. normative value of liberty. And so, That's right. you know, I, I'm getting heated if someone's going to try to like defend how like, no, he's all about individual freedom. He's about a specific kind, kind of, of individual freedom. freedom that let's be clear, he is quite okay with it being imposed because he takes himself to be in this world historical battle. If the stakes are this high, mm-hmm. what what's the individual liberty of democratic citizens in another country? Yeah, I just want to say two, two, two things. One is there's another third premise that I would add to the two premises you've read it, I think. And it's another kind of hard limit for him on the possibilities of collectivism, which is that there's a collective action problem, right, that he points to, which is that it's just impossible. It's actually not possible. It's an anthropological claim about the inability for humans to yeah. actually coordinate, consciously coordinate and agree on certain ends and pursue them in any kind of like durable way in common, right? Like common activity, common action is just for him. Again, that's, that's another hard, that I think is, again, a premise that is just as, in my view, just as arbitrary as when Hobbes uses it, right? Like the, well, people just, you know, in the state of nature, they're just kind of hardwired to, you need something artificial in order to make them get along. We're naturally, constitutively incapable of actually acting in common in any way. I'll, I'll agree with you that like, I don't think we should buy that in principle is just like a hard, like, limit for once and for all but i do think we should give him credit like when he starts talking about this sort of thing like it's it makes sense that he would say i would say the same thing just that we said about the other problem which is that i it is a real problem i just don't think it's a black box like it's like well nothing humans can just there's no way to find ways to to work like so for instance he says things like you know the planners will try to get everybody on board with pursuing the common good the general welfare, the general interest. And like you say that and everyone's like, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. But he goes, ah, notice that those are very abstract, very vague. In fact, the reason everybody can get on board with them is because they're sufficiently vague that, mm-hmm. that you know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's capacious enough to include, to cover over like a, a wide variety of different systems of values. But then when people start having conversations, even in a democratic society about like, oh, what did we mean by general welfare? And he's like, there might be as many disagreements about that as there are people in the room, right? And that's true. Like, that's like, again, a real problem. I'm not convinced, though, to your point that, like, we therefore throw up our hands and say, let's never try to figure out what we mean by common good or something like this, just because yeah. there's spontaneous disagreement. But there is a, there is a, I don't know, a, de- a I deliberation. Agree. I guess problem. I just wonder what his explanation for things like labor unions would be, like how, how that's possible or how it happens. I, I think he does have an answer. He talks about, like, provisional you know, combination with others for certain very specific ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'd be nice to hear him, uh, you know, it'd be nice to hear him address some of the, some of these kind of factual. Yeah. Oh, and I don't want you to back off your point too quickly because, you know, here, maybe this is me trying to pull the rug out from under Hayek. And I should say, like, I've read a lot of Hayek. He is a very smart guy and that's why we're talking about him. But, oh, and if he is right, then why should he worry about things like revolution and all of that? It seems as yeah, if it should be that, that just yeah. won't be, it, you know, we might want it to happen, but we don't got the goods because we're not the type of creatures who can do that. So there That's is something point because about yeah, him so that funny. this is so natural and yet it has to be so coerced uh, again and again yeah. for this supposedly natural form of life. And I want to say at, at, at the end of the day, then, dude, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it that this is you know, evolutionarily how you know, we are as human beings, and yet there's always you know, the persistent idea that we're going to not be able to do that when you just said we can do no other. 
So either you are making a political argument and you are saying things like, then we need policies and the state and economics to constrain this and do it, or you're saying that this is actually something that's natural and accords to our nature. Thus, we actually don't need to really, no sweat. Like, you know, yeah, people that, will try. That's a really but- good point. A revolution is not a riot. I mean, every revolution has required like very durable form, like forms of collective action that eventually get institutionalized and everything. But can I just say one other thing that I, before we that I wanted to address before we end because it's another claim that you brought up in um in the in your intro, Will, which I th- which we didn't touch on, which is this claim that that fascism and and communism are two species of the same genus, right? They're two. They're, they're basically he thinks they're much more similar than they are different. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, at one point, and there's a couple of moments where I was, you know, shaking my shaking my head, but one moment where I was like, this is just incredibly vile, was when he's talking about how, like, uh, you know, yes, it looks like in it's the communists who were fighting the fascists the hardest, you know, but that's actually deceptive. They were, <laughs> they, they were fighting for the same type of person, right? It's the same type of person that becomes a communist or a fascist. They wouldn't even try to persuade a liberal, right? right? So he says, you know, the communists, uh, well, yeah, it's true. They were the ones that actually fucking confronted, like, fascists and tried to defeat them. Politically, physically, you know what I mean? Uh, and But that is actually an illusion because it was more like infighting between like brothers about who was going to be the top dog amongst the most servile <laughs> kind of heads. And that is, I mean, not only is it like ahistorical. Yeah, I actually I just did, fucking disgust. I think disgust is the right word. I think that that's the part of the manuscript where I was like, there is this willful misrepresentation is, is, a, is, a, is a mild way of putting it, but... Politically speaking, it is possible and has happened for people who are right-wing to develop politics in some kind of relationship with the left. You know, this happens. And he's not wrong that Mussolini was attracted to the left and Mm -hmm. then then went to the right. Um, People change their politics over the course of their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I've changed my politics over the course of my life. Not that drastically, but it happens. But there's something that gets so simple for liberals who make this argument that communism and fascism are two sides of the same coin that I find so intellectually dishonest that it's almost like from going from the one to the other doesn't actually involve changing your mind. You know, so if if it were so obvious that these two things were the same, why do they involve changing your mind? Why do you have to pick a side? Why is it that you can just get familiar with the communist left and then when you start to develop right-wing ideas, they fucking hate you and you have to do something else? It's like this this <laughs> grand illusion to convince mm-hmm. us all that there is only one possible political ideology that is a non-ideology um, because the other ideologies are the same is... It's very, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's worth taking seriously because of how incredibly seductive it is. Like your average liberal does actually just think this, and every, by the way, every yes. radical yeah. liberal mm-hmm. postmodernist also thinks this. So it is worth taking seriously, but it comes at the cost of intellectual honesty yeah. about history and the kinds of decisions that people make, and it's an Im- immense. Fatalism that when people start thinking in terms of mass politics at all, or they start thinking about politics at all, and they start feeling like they have the agency to change the world, therein lies the danger. 
because they'll get attracted to the groups. And the groups, as you know, they are all the same. He's really into the word totalitarianism, which I guess he keeps making it sound like it's made a new appearance. I don't really know when that word really entered into currency, but he's very happy with this term because like, you know, it shows that people are starting to understand that, that you know, it covers both fascism and and communism so people are starting to get that you know these are bedfellows or whatever and yeah that's another word that's done a lot of damage to people's brains totalitarianism totally. also i think of you know, i'm going to be polemical here i don't really believe this the way i'm going to say it but like what i see as like you know the three villains of the mid 20th century when it comes to liberal thinking hayek popper and Arendt. And all of them are writing mm -hmm. in a world where it seems as if mass action and mass politics is possible. And what I can't forgive them for is I understand them responding to their world. But what I can't forgive them for is that these set of ideas escape that historical context, framed and shaped our thinking, even as we live in a world that no longer has, you know, at least the immediate capacities for mass uh, action and politics and created this arrogance in liberalism that they are the ones above the fray when they are almost dogmatically hinged to these anti-utopian mother <laughs> i'm gonna stop there mm -hmm. and so you know <laughs> there's just something you know, also deeply constraining in hayek that you know this idea that you know it is the liberals who don't have really any ideology and yet hiding all of this force coercion effort it takes to shape the world to these dictates while saying oh yeah you believe in social welfare you know the nazis are called national socialists so who's the oh villain of history now and like unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable you are not more mature and better than the rest of us you also have a political think about position just the dishonor it requires to the memory of these people yeah. mm. like that's what that's what that's what i can't like that like this is like this is the thing that really sickens me it's like for every jewish communist that spent the first half of the 20th century and before that fighting for political and civil rights and identifying with the socialist movement for generations of people. And mm -hmm. you have the audacity to tell those people that the world they were fighting for is the same world that sought to annihilate them. You, you yeah. sick fuck. It's so sick. And anyone who makes this argument, that is what you're saying. Like concretely, that is what you're saying. Yeah. A hundred percent. No. And it's, Again, it's a generalized hostility to the way that you put it before, Lillian. was really good, like, thinking that you could d make things better at all. Just, this is why he likes, and this is, again, like, the implicit, the tacit ideology of the liberalism that claims not to be ideological is just status quo defense always. And which is why, like, Hayek's conservatism makes total sense as following from his epistemological commitments. And it's why he says he likes democracy in the chapter of democracy. The thing that's cool about democracy is that it sucks at getting anything <laughs> done. And like we mm -hmm. love fucking parliamentarism because like people just like get get together and they like they complain and they vent and they bitch talk and moan and then and then they talk <laughs> shop and nothing really gets done and he's like this is cool actually because imagine if instead people could like try to like accomplish anything politically Terrifying. to like actually change the social fabric oh no can't have that what if thing what if things go really wrong <laughs> it's like ah uh, what if we started destroying the whole planet and it just started burning up in a ball of fire <laughs> oh, what, what about you, what about that. Make I'm no sure plans. somehow that's the fault of the collectivists. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the guy that designed the Chicago waterfront? Lillian must know the, the big planner in Chicago. 
Burnham? Burnham, yeah. See, I'm, I'm more with Burnham on this. You know, make no small plans. Wow. <laughs> Fuck to make no I plans. I hate yeah. you. Make no small plans. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham did well. Missed a few. Could We could have done with some more, like, roundabouts. But it was <laughs> overall a good set of ideas. Some more diagonal streets, maybe. But, yeah. yeah. You know, nothing's perfect. All in but- all definitely better and yes i mean this mostly as a joke i'm not going to say anything more about this but yes gill called hayek a conservative we are aware that hayek has that essay in constitution of liberty why i'm not a conservative so i guess he yeah, just gets to name himself and we just take his word conservatives for it. lie to me all the time i'm used to this yeah well yeah. a rent's hard to pin down you know you we see a pattern emerging <laughs> here that like when you're hostile yeah, when you're above to the, the left in mass politics you can you can yeah. like so Suddenly you're like, me, me, me. I'm like above it all. No problem. I'm way more complex than you could ever imagine. And that's because you're epistemically limited. So you would never be able to know my political ideology. Oh, boy. I love this. But I did know Allende was bad. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't complex, though, apparently. That was pretty straightforward. That wasn't complex, yeah. All right. That does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are David Moon, Tarang Saluha, Stephen Malley, Paulo Weinman, Jabul Mikkel Molefi, Sionach, Luis Sotillo, TM, Chelsea Salyer, Veron Antori, Matthew Von Schutch, Laura Carlson Karp, Carson Eschman, Gom Goblin, Sammy Happa, Ryan Miller, Colton Mooberry, Jonathan Marty, Anders Campman, WNEP16. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we are doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Later. Bye.